episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, and somewhere in Los Angeles. Aloe was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, to create a rehab that treats addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control, which is a beautiful thing. They have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders like the dread severe mental illness, as well as actual alcoholism and drug addiction. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which you all know is critical. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, including the sound bath meditation, the equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, surfing, and so much more. But most importantly, everyone that I know that has been to Aloe just said it was a great place where people actually gave a fuck about them, which sounds like an awesome way to get sober. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get well, I totally recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Sober Buddy. I want to tell you guys about Sober Buddy since it's super available to you if you need some help with your sobriety. It's the little blue fluffy guy you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. You can either use their free service called Sober Buddy Mail, which is a daily email with bite-sized sober challenges plus motivation and tips that are super helpful, or you can download the Your Sober Buddy app, which is an interactive version that shifts your challenges and motivations based on how you respond to it. The app also has a sober tracker that's down to the second and daily check-ins from Buddy, where he asks you how you're feeling and if you're sober, and then gives you advice based on your mood. Right now, Sober Buddy has over 30,000 people using their service to get sober, and I know we've had a bunch of dopey listeners using it and really loving it. So if you're interested, check them out on YourSoberBuddy.com, and you can see all of their services there. It's super nice to have these free and inexpensive resources out there for everyone now. It has been a long time coming. Again, that's YourSoberBuddy.com. If you're interested, check them out. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Soberlink. Soberlink knows that somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol because it is so widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professionals, recovery coaches, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to our listeners, email info at soberlink.com. You mentioned Opie and you get 50 bucks off your device. That's 50 bucks at info at soberlink.com. Do it for someone who cares. Let Soberlink help you to get off the sauce. And finally, and most importantly, 
This episode of Dopey is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power and passion and pathos of the Dopey Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And there's so much shit on Patreon right now, it's like bursting at the seams. Last week, Linda and I participated in like a weird Long Island addiction recovery thing. They played clips from Dopey. It was cool. And um, it was a lot about Dopey and a lot about addiction and recovery. And it's up on Patreon at the $2 level. A week before, we had a psychic who said Chris contacted her. We did the exclusive Last Jewish Waiter sizzle reel. There's a lot of good stuff, and it is fairly cheap, if not extremely cheap. So if you're a cheapo, it's probably right in your wheelhouse. So go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. I think I said that right. www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. If you contribute to the Patreon, it really helps us make the best show we can and helps Dopey stay as happy, joyous, and free as possible. And it's just like, it, it allows me to put as much effort as I can into this dopey thing, which I do anyway. So help us out. Thank you. Also, we've got crazy gear available. Our friends at SRO Prince is making a top-notch dopey merchandise. There is a sale on fucking shit. We are losing the dopey graffiti logo. It's 20% off. We are losing, or at least temporarily, or maybe forever, losing the just the head In those colorways, it is 20% off. We are losing the Praying Mantis uh, coin, Dopey coin. It is 20% off. We have a ton of Good So Bad shirts, so they are now 20% off too. Go to dopeypodcast.com, buy some fucking merch. We will send it out in a timely fashion. If you want stickers or snapbacks, just hit me up at Venmo, and I will get it out to you in a timely fashion. I also have Oy Vey hats, snapbacks, which are perfect for summer if you're making a Semitic scene someplace or an anti-Semitic scene. It'll be, it'll be all the talk of the town. Anyway, enough of the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and my name is Dave. And two weeks in a row now, I'm at my dad's house by myself. It's incredibly liberating. I feel good. I'm in my underwear and a t-shirt, and I just, I'm letting it all hang out. It is a spring day. My birthday is just around the corner, which I love my birthday because I'm so self-centered and egomaniacal. My birthday is like, everyone says I'm too old to love my birthday, and I'm certainly getting older, but I still love my birthday. Do you guys love your birthday the way I love mine? I don't know. I'm very curious. If, if you have an opinion, send an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. There is big news in the dopey nation, in the dopesphere, for all of the dopes and dopiates out there, which is the Toodles for Chris scholarship uh, movement marches on. Can't really call it a foundation because it's not technically a foundation, but it might become a foundation. In the past month, we've sent two new dopes to treatment. We sent Sarah to Lakeview Recovery in Jacksonville, Florida. 
So thank you, Lakeview Recovery in Jacksonville. I cannot thank you enough for helping out Sarah. She was a crazy Xanax addict, and she is on her way to getting well. And we sent Jason to Liberty Bay in Portland, Maine. So thank you, Liberty Bay, and thank you, Jason, for taking the step, for taking the plunge. And a little known fact about Jason is that Jason is the brother of Jamie, who coined the phrase the alt-recovery movement. So we're keeping it in the family. So if you guys are fucking struggling or you know anyone who is struggling, uh, drop a line and, um, and maybe we can get you guys into treatment. It is not a guarantee by any means, but it's not impossible either. Justin Cambria, who is the chairperson of the Toodles for Chris Pseudo Foundation, and he's making it happen. You know, and he has his own little... Uh, uh, recovery house. Yeah, so his recovery house is called New Harbor at Hingham, and it is in Massachusetts, and uh, Justin's doing an incredible job. I met him through Chris. He came on the show years ago, and he has been just uh, instrumental in helping uh, dopes who need help get treatment through this scholarship. So uh, kudos and praise to Justin Cambria. And if anyone needs a scholarship, just write me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I can't promise that we'll get you anywhere, uh, but I can promise that we'll try. Because when we get to send people someplace, it's like Dopey, which I love to be this entertainment juggernaut, you know, this, this beacon of recovery, entertainment, and comedy. But like when we send people to treatment, we're actually doing something good, which is so cool. You know, it is the best. So there's tons of incredibly exciting stuff happening. But I think for me, the most exciting thing happening is that the Knicks are in the playoffs. They tied the series one game of peace. Magic is back at Madison Square Garden. And I cannot tell you, like, how good it makes me feel. Every day I wear my Knicks cap and people are pointing at their Knicks caps. And all of a sudden... You know, a lot of people in this town forgot about the Knicks and talked shit. And people in the country had a good time talking shit about the Knicks. But I'm telling you, to be a loyal Knicks fan for as long as I have, through the losing and the horror and the bullshit, to be committed, I always told everybody that when we were good again, how sweet it would be. And they should stick around. Because then you don't have to be the dick who gave up on somebody and then saw them come back. And it, it strikes me as a great parable in recovery. You need to stay believing. Be a believer. Stay positive. Support your friends who are struggling. Because when they come back, if you are supportive, they will remember you for it. And their recovery will be all the sweeter. Or support yourself. And if you're all fucked up and losing, just know that if you hold on, and you do the next right thing, and you learn to play team basketball and team defense, your life can get back in order. It's what a time to be a Knicks fan. I hope some of you Dopey Nation folks who gave up on the Knicks or were never Knicks fans or talked shit or whatever are going to come over because, you know, New York City basketball is very exciting. You know, James Dolan is a polarizing figure, but the New York Knickerbockers is... Just a, a storied and incredibly important franchise. Um, that's another thing that I need to mention. Coming up tomorrow, Saturday night, 
It is the Dopey Patreon Zoom. This weekend, which is Memorial Day weekend, there's going to be a marathon of Dopey Zooms. And in one of them on Saturday night, I'm going to be at the Dopey Patreon Zoom. You do not have to be a Patreon member this week. It's a freebie for everyone in the Dopey Nation. We're going to play games. We're going to kick it around. I'll give the state of the Dopey Nation. And um, who knows who will be there? You never know who's going to show up at the Dopey Zoom. Now, this week on the show, we had a different sort of uh, experience, but I liked it. Her name is Louisa. And she is an industrial techno DJ. She's a New Yorker, but she relocated to Paris. And she has a, a podcast called the Sober Sex Podcast. And she's a dopey fan. And she had me on the Sober Sex Podcast. And then I found out she was in town. So I went down to, uh, to interview her. The only problem was I only brought one mic cable. So like in the spirit of the scrubbiness that can be the dopey podcast, we shared the microphone. But here she is. You pronounce it Louisa or Louisa. She is a, I want to say a house music, no? Techno. We say techno. Industrial techno. What's the difference between industrial techno and deep house? I was just reading deep house. I feel like that that was some moons ago, and I apologize for not updating the SoundCloud bio. Uh, I would say this is like a s stupid nuances, but it's, it has to do with like hi-hats. <laughs> So explain, what's the difference? First of all, I have to tell everyone that I'm in this beautiful apartment. This woman's name is Louisa with three H's. Her real name is Louisa, and her name is Louisa Pilot. Pilot? Wow, I said that right. Yeah, one of the first few people that's ever said the name right on the first try. And the worst thing is that I didn't expect to be doing this interview here, and I decided at the last second to walk down from Katz's, but I only had one XLR cable, so we're sharing the mic. Yes, it's like being on an MTV2 interview with a VJ, like a red carpet style. Like, what do you think? Mic pause, switch to speaker. It's, it's uh, fascinating. I used to do those. Really? Oh, yeah, because you worked for MTV. <laughs> I worked for a, some, a company that... I did work for MTV, but I worked for a company that was so below MTV that I did this, like, totally... Very cool. So your practice, this is why you're so good at it. Sorry if I just spat on you. Listen, you feel free to spit. Louisa, Louis, you say it better. Well, it's, it, like, it's, it's how you feel. <laughs> so you'd be like, Louisa, or Louisa. Like, you know, it's, it's an excla exclamation or a, a, a um, exploration of human emotion. <laughs> how did you come up with that in the first place? I was on so much cocaine. <laughs> I mean, and initially it had three exclamation parts also, so it was like exclamation points. So it was L-O-U-I-S-A-H-H-H, three exclamation points, which is a, it's a fucking mouthful. And I didn't anticipate having to say my own name that much. It was just like for writing. <laughs> so, uh, and then why I started to kind of develop any kind of notoriety um, as, a, as a DJ or a producer, <laughs> the, the name had already stuck. And it's something I kind of regret, but now it's too late to go back, and I, I choose to embrace it. Let's, I want to hear about that. I want to hear about that. So basically, at what point do you go from being Louisa to Louisa? Like, how old are you? Name it. Tell me the, the, the naming of you as an artist. Um, so I, was, I, I grew up here in New York City, and I started DJing around when I uh, was like 17, turning 18. And everybody at that time had like DJ names, 
you know, and they were all kind of fun and exciting. There was like, um, somebody was, it was kind of around the like motherfucker party. So it was like Michael T and Justine D and DJ Jess and everybody like, and I felt like I wanted to stand out. So I was, it, initially the spelling of the name was actually um, like, arbitrary, you could do whatever you wanted with it as long as there were lots of A's and lots of H's and lots of exclamation points. Um, and then that was, then the internet kind of <laughs> caught up and you had to like canonize it. Um, but yeah, I was just, I wanted to like, I was doing a lot of screaming <laughs> at that point, probably related to my heavy cocaine use and Louisa kind of came and stuck and then I didn't anticipate having to ever like say it in interviews, <laughs> like Dopey for instance. <laughs> And here we are. <laughs> and you, but you've become comfortable. It's become a means of somebody being able to like say your. It's like it can be like ah or ah. Or, or. Is there ever a pirate, Louisa? <laughs> that, I believe that would be Louisa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which has not been done, but you know, feel free <laughs> if that's what you're feeling, go for it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, it's like it's the worst. <laughs> As we're in an interview where I'm being asked that question, I'm like, they're like, what does your name mean? I'm like, it means I was like a fucked up kid. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, we have to, like, we, we were just discussing before, before recording that it, Dopey is about getting free of shame, and I have lost all shame around this choice of, of moniker. Well, I love that. And Louisa, uh, I'm not going to keep saying Louisa. I can't do it. But I'm going to say Louisa. <laughs> and Louisa... Me and Louisa have been in touch for a while. Louisa has a, a, a podcast about sobriety and addiction and sexuality and sex called Sober Sex, and she had me on. I was like the biggest prude on Sober Sex, wasn't I? You were really uptight. It was pretty cute. Because I feel like, you know, in, in Sober Sex, it is like an opportunity to ask people that we don't know that well questions about their sex lives. <laughs> but it's also a, like an exploration of kind of what it means to be authentic in our sexuality in sobriety, because I think that that's a tough question for a lot of people, and like something that can take a while to kind of figure out or like feel comfortable with. And I felt like you being like a mega prude was actually a, a deep sign of respect for your your marriage and your partnership. You it know? was a hundred percent. I just didn't want to get in trouble. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, like not getting in trouble and like being respectful <laughs> and like being you know having like a a broad stroll around the boundary that your partner might have talking about your sex life is like, a, it, that's not a bad thing, <laughs> you know? Like, but I, I feel like it was a good and authentic interview, you know, to like talking about like what it means to be a sober dad, you know, especially raising girls. And like, I, it was, I, I recall it as a very lovely interview, even though Rose got really testy, my, my co-host got really testy with you. I was like, <laughs> we had to have a chat later about like not, <laughs> not like coming at our guest because i i'm so deeply non-confrontational that both of you guys could like have a banter but it made me super freak out <laughs> what did she how did she come at me i don't even remember i feel like she was just teasing you and like i'm an only child so i, I like don't tolerate teasing <laughs> and i so i got kind of like clammed up but uh it's funny that like I, i'm glad that you don't <laughs> remember that part i remember it being really nice i'm a younger child i tease like so much like i'm so like ridiculous with teasing but I don't do well when people tease me <laughs> I, I can see that I mean I, like even just reading I'm I am a fan of dopey and part of the dopey nation I mean I'm not publicly on the internet but definitely like in my heart <laughs> and it's like even when people leave you know rude comments <laughs> on the podcast that could be 
um, I don't know, interpreted as teasing, it's like, shut the fuck down. Like, for me, I've just decided that, like, blocking and muting on the internet is a form of self-love. <laughs> so I'm like, if you're coming at me in any kind of way, even if it's a teasing, like, some guy came at me a few weeks ago, slid up in my DMs just to tell me I had horrible hair, block. <laughs> like, fuck you. You don't get to come in this space and tell me you don't like something about me. Like, fuck out of here. Right. That's fucking... See, I think that I've been very fortunate. You know, the reviews, there's a lot of people who just... I don't know. I think I, I I think people want me to go crazy about the reviews sometimes, and I think that's part of it. Right after Chris died, there was a transition with the show where, like, there was a flurry of very negative stuff at me that was like crazy, like toxic. But that I mean, I don't I don't get much of that stuff. But um, I had a good time on Sober Sex. I enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. Um, why did you want to do it in the first place? The podcast? Yeah. Um, I felt like we actually had started, you know, I'm like s- sober 15 years via 12-step. And like we had started a women's meeting around, it called like a sex inventory meeting, which was like a format that nobody had kind of encountered before where we just like it, it was essentially a women's or like non-binary person's stag. And we would read the part in the big book about set, like now about sex. Um, and kind of discuss what was going on in that area explicitly because like no one fucking does ever. And it was so, like it's still going on. This has become my home group actually. Like it started on Zoom and it remains on Zoom because everybody's from different parts of the world. But um, like the kind of shifts that we were having, I think as a group in terms of like figuring out like what was acceptable in this area in sobriety and kind of, like you say, getting free of shame. And, like, because, again, like, the, the big book was re- fucking written by a bunch of, like, white dudes in the 30s. And it doesn't, like, it's a very small part of what's discussed in terms of sobriety in the book. And, like, I think it's been very helpful to be able to discuss that with other sober people, you know, and kind of figure out what, what that looks like. Um, what kind of getting free of old ideas about like sex and sexuality in sobriety looks like? Because for a long, 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 long time, I f- like for the first probably decade of my recovery, I thought like, want me to hold this? <laughs> I thought that um, like I had to kind of be prude or I had to kind of be like uptight and I kind of disowned like my actual desire or my actual shadow or anything that was kind of like what I considered to be out of line or out of like quote unquote God's will, whatever that looks like or whatever that means in recovery, like I thought all of my kind of base desires were kind of to be cast out and like it wasn't working so I was, you know, turning on myself. And it was very helpful to kind of discover within sobriety that that was actually an untrue understanding for me of like what sober sex could be. So it was helpful and exciting to be able to kind of ask that question to other people and to kind of open up like a bigger universe or a broader concept of what sober sex might be because I feel like it's an awkward thing already, (laughs) you know? And so to be able to, to like, give people the opportunity to, like, tell their story and get free of the shame or, like, give others hope, um, then that's a beautiful thing, you know? I I think that's interesting to me. I also just think in terms of, like, my own work around sex inventory, I think it was, like, lackluster. My sex... Like, my first sponsor... We, like, barely did sex inventory work. With my new sponsor, I'm, like, just... I'm just about done writing it. And, um, you know, the idea of sex as another way to get out of yourself, you know, 
is very real, you know. I've never really dissected the way the sex inventory plays out in the book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? It seems like you're an expert at this. I, I think the thing that I'm realizing, and perhaps you too, is that like the more I know, the less of an expert I am. And it basically like, <laughs> I'm sorry for alternative recovery dopey nation friends. Like this is going to get real specific, but in the book, it, so the the fourth step, the inventory is broken down into resentments, fear, and sex. And in sex, they talk about like, you know, some like everybody has a different opinion on sex. And if, of course, I believe the history of Alcoholics Anonymous is that Bill Wilson, one of the founders, was like a terrible philanderer till the till the end, right? And they basically are like, you want to try to kind of be the best person that you can be in partnership or in sexual relationship um, and like try to cause as little harm as possible um, and you might not be perfect and that's okay but like if you keep causing harm without reflecting on this you probably will drink is kind of where they where they leave it um, but what that looks like, I think, is different for everybody. And of course, being a book written in the 1930s, they weren't like, and here is our consensual non-monogamous relationship. Do you think the sex inventory was was added to the book because he was a flander? I mean, very possible. But I do think that like having talked to a lot of you know, people about their sober sex, like I think that it is a real issue for a lot of us, you know? I think for everyone, you know, and and again, I apologize to you and for the dopey nation that we have to go back and forth with the mic. I've I've gotten comfortable and realized like this is it and this is what we have to do. So, are you comfortable? I'm good. Sweet. So, <laughs> open open that up more though, because we never talk about this stuff on dopey. And I think this I I didn't I wanted to talk about coke and how you started DJing and techno music and the difference between house and deep house and hi-hat patterns and placement. But now I want, this is way more important. Like how does sex fuck you up and how did doing the sex inventory unfuck you up? I'm not sure if it's like an unfucking up even. I think it's like more um, accepting and loving the parts of myself that like I didn't feel fit neatly in a kind of puritanical box. And realizing that for me like my higher power is not a Puritan. Thank fucking God. <laughs> is your higher power like a big freak then? Oh, my higher power is like a total fucking perv. And this is great. Like loves that part of me. You know? Luis is like, I have to meet you, but I also have to stop by the fetish store to get like three <laughs> leather hoods too. So I'm not sure which I'm going to do first. So um, did you ever have a thing where the, um, where the sex was super shameful? No, I felt like my ability to kind of get into this part of myself to like actually like <laughs> fuck authentically to like own this part and to like exist in it like in um, harmony is the word I, <laughs> this is coming to mind, but that's fucking cheesy <laughs> uh, in cohesion or like um, w- within kind of my idea of quote unquote God's will. Like and when I say God, don't get freaked out. It's just like what a higher power of my understanding. Um, who happens to be a kinky perv, <laughs> was actually, like, by hooking up with another sober member of our secret club that we talk about constantly, um, who I'd known for a long time and trusted a lot in recovery, and, like, feeling like, oh, what, like, this part's, this, I thought, always thought this was for other people. Like, this, this part of sexuality is actually accessible to me, like, as a good sober person. <laughs> cool you know because again like it's causing no harm and it's like it is actually for me like authentic and integrated now 
But for a long time, I just thought it was off limits because that was shit that I liked to do when I was like super fucked up. And now I'm not super fucked up, but turns out I can do that like safely and in, in presence, you know, and in consent, which is of course very important in sobriety. But um, yeah, I, th I think, you know, especially getting sober, I got sober at 20, I got sober super young. So like so much of that stuff was figured out like as I got sober and there was like, you know, uh, now when you talk about shame, like the stuff that I'm ashamed of is not stuff, there's no, it's, I, I wouldn't even call it stuff that I'm ashamed of. I would call it like I have deep, compassion for the girl that like thought that that was some shit that she had to do in order to be liked or be acceptable or be worthy of love you know it's much it's much like heavier <laughs> you know no but i think that's the most amazing thing because that's like the the get out of jail free card like when you can find love and compassion for yourself and you don't go down those roads and you go down the love and compassion road you're like okay everything's nice and easy uh when did you start getting high in the first place uh when i was like Probably 17, I started, like, having sex and smoking some weed and, like, drinking a little bit, but that's also kind of when I started um, starving myself. So alcohol was very, like, not very interesting to me because it was, like, too many calories. And also because I wasn't eating a lot, it made me super drunk, super fast. And then when I was around 18, I was dating a drug dealer who was like, don't do cocaine. And I was like, okay. And then, of course, I did cocaine, and it was, like, the best fucking thing on the planet because as like a sensitive and kind of, you know, um, like socially awkward kid who cared deeply about what everybody else thought all the time to like not have to give a fuck, to be suddenly like given the power of like coolness as in like ice fucking cold, like I don't give a fuck about anything, like nihilism basically <laughs> was amazing, you know? And it was super fun at the time. So, like, what does that look like? Who's the drug dealer, and why did he say don't do cocaine? Where did you meet him? Like, give us the setup. Because we're in New York City. We both grew up here. Uh, I know we had very different experiences growing up here, but still, I like, I like to, to understand what I'm hearing here. So give me the, what's the drug dealer like? Where did you meet him? What was he selling? You know, let's, let's get all the, all the stuff. Oh my God, this is, it's actually like, it's very much dating me, myself, when I was in my senior year of high school, and on MySpace, which used to be a place for friends, <laughs> um, I like randomly met a, like a dude who seemed like fun. This is like, looking back, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, how on, why, wow, like meeting strangers on the internet seemed like a great idea at the time. You were a kid. I was a child. <laughs> And the internet was new, and it seemed like, you know, no dangers could possibly happen there. And so I, like, this, this guy's name was Sneaky Pete, <laughs> which should have been the giveaway. And I was a fairly innocent child. Like, I, you know, I liked playing guitar, and, like, I was a competitive horseback rider. Those were my, like, main passions in life. I was obsessed with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the band Garbage, and was shockingly kind of an outcast at my very small school. <laughs> so Sneaky Pete wants to hang out. What, not a lot of alternative equestrians there? <laughs> Bizarrely, no. Sad, 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 sad. But um, so met up with this Sneaky Pete character, and he was kind of talking about cocaine, like, f like flippantly, like, like it was just something everybody did. And I was like, wow, like 
this is a real thing. Like I, I just saw that in like movies. You know, I was I was feel like I was a very sheltered child, <laughs> and then, which is bizarre because my dad is like later on told me about the horrors of mistaking ketamine for cocaine or cocaine, yeah, ketamine for cocaine and like tripping balls. <laughs> anyway, um, Sneaky Pete took me to a party uh, called. I believe it was misshapes or happy endings, and kind of like, finally, I felt like I had arrived. Like I, at that point, was totally sober, had never done any cocaine, maybe had like a Sparks, which was at the moment a caffeinated uh, ginseng, caffeine, taurine, and like grain alcohol beverage, (laughs) poor man's speedball, and um, and kind of I felt like I had arrived. You know, I felt like oh my god, like this is the coolest thing I've ever been a part of. Like how can I be a part of this more? Uh, Cut to started fucking, dating is too strong a word, Sneaky Pete's roommate. And he, like, who I was very infatuated with. Um, And he was the person who first sold to me under the... under the guise of like, don't do, I'm giving, I'm selling you cocaine that you're not allowed to use, which I, let's, let's not be naive. <laughs> the boyfriend did or Sneaky Pete himself? The boyfriend did. They were all, like, Sneaky Pete and friends were all dealing drugs at the time. How did you wind up leaving the boyfriend for Sneaky Pete? Oh, I didn't leave the boyfriend for Sneaky Pete. I actually left Sneaky Pete for the boyfriend. Boyfriend, again, being a strong word. I understand. So <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're coming up in the in basically the party scene in New York, and Coke becomes incredibly attractive. Yeah, like incredibly attractive, and I get and I think that like I remember doing cocaine for the first time um, at my my dad's house upstate with some friends, a friend that I had friend uh, a friend that I had made up there who was like a deep childhood friend and a, a club kid who is also now sober today. Shout out Nico. <laughs> And we watched Party Monster, which, like, everybody chops each... Like, there's a murder with, like, a body getting dismembered by chainsaws over, like, ketamine gone wrong. And, and like, this should have been an ominous warning that we all failed to heed. Like, that... <laughs> and I remember, like, calling people and being like, guess what's happening? And they're like, what? And I'm like, I'm doing cocaine. And they were like, oh, my God. Can you please not do that? And also, if you have any, you have to give it to me. And this is the best thing and the worst thing you'll ever do in your life. Like... I got a lot of information almost immediately about not, like... Don't do it, but let me do your drugs, basically. Basically. And, like, when you came up in the scene, like, obviously, you're, you're a bit younger than me, and you're much... And we're both younger than the... I mean, I think I'm about the age of the party monster scene, really. Um, or maybe I'm a little bit younger. A little bit younger. What was the club scene like then? I mean, it was super fun. Like, it was... Um, a lot of stuff on like the Lower East Side and East Village and just like running around from club to club to club to club. And it was all kind of shitty, grimy bars. Like it wasn't like big, massive, like Cielo, like Pasha. Like it wasn't kind of fancy, slick clubs. It was like dirty basements. And it was amazing. It was an amazing place to kind of like cut teeth, you know? And around that time, like um, cut lines, hey. (laughs) But around that time, like I guess... Giuliani, Bloomberg, somebody, Giuliani had like, they were trying to um, put into place the cabaret licenses where like you weren't allowed to dance in bars. So everything felt kind of clandestine. I mean, I remember like we threw a party. We used to just like run up and down um, avenues, like literally up and downtown, just trying doors. 
And if the doors were open at like two or three in the morning, we would go up the stairs of the building. This happened like more in kind of Soho and, and downtown areas. And like I, we threw a slip and slide party on the roof of this like karate school <laughs> in, in, um, in Soho, you know, like it was just like, it, it felt so fun and exciting. And it felt like, again, because of the access to drugs, like I, su I suddenly felt like a part of for the first time. And it was really like, it felt very magical. Totally, but that's, you know, you're also talking about old New York and, like, old New York, even young old New York, you know what I mean? Like, every everybody who's around is, like, that's old New York and, like, you know, like, my, you know, my dad doesn't really care about old New York, but, like, older people will have their own version, but when you could go to a roof in New York City and set up a slip and slide and have a party, even without drugs, it's incredibly magical. Like this, and and like you're talking about fucking Giuliani. Now he's like, the fucking like. <laughs> I can't, like I can't even equate those two people, right? Like the Giuliani of the recent Borat movie, and like the Giuliani of like the post 9/11 mayor. <laughs> it's it's like so weird. It's like it's like a, a horror show. It's like it's like some like young Frankenstein version of Giuliani now. <laughs> it's it's. I just keep thinking about that, uh, the post-election convention that they had at the Four Seasons Landscaping, and I'm like, this is like, <laughs> this is a metaphor for everything. Well, it's like, it is, it is, but anyway, it's like, and Giuliani, lots of people have a lot of sh terrible things to say about him at the height of him, you know, making New York more palatable and safer and all that stuff, but New York really did become safer and more palatable under his horrible regime. Boo! Yeah, it also became probably less less magical every year, and every year after that, another doorway to a roof was locked. You know what I mean? When I was a kid, uh, there the door had a, an alarm thing on it, but you knew it didn't work, so you pushed it and it didn't go off. And then, like sometime within the administration of Giuliani, somebody put an alarm on it. So then we broke the window, and we would. <laughs> creep out the, the thing and we would we'd trip acid on the 22nd floor which probably isn't the safest thing to do. Probably not, no. <laughs> and we would smoke weed up there or we'd have sex or we'd have fun. Like lit, Being a young person in New York City on a roof in the summertime might be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I agree. I, like, I totally agree with that statement. I mean it was such a like again kind of we're talking about like post 9-11 New York so it was like no, no, for me it was like around, like I started going out around 2003, 2004, like seriously, that's like when I started doing drugs and like kind of getting into trouble. And it was just like, the whole city was kind of freaked out and traumatized and the, they were trying to, really hard to like bring life back to downtown, but like it was still like super, it felt super fucked up down here. Like, and I think that, that that window of kind of like the dis disassociated public with like, I, we just can't fucking deal with our own like, how freaked out we are by this like weird hole in the sky, and you know, like all that shit. Like it, it made a youth that was kind a little bit like untouched by that. Like we, like for me, I was a sophomore in high school when that happened. Like by the time I was a senior, I could give a fuck, you know? It was just, like, ready to... It was just, like, of course America sucks. Like, let's fucking break shit. And it was great. <laughs> right. Let's, let's get fucked up. So I think I'm, like, 10 years older than you. Um, and, and the other thing is that Louisa grew up, like, a stone's throw from the World Trade Center. Yeah. We can, like, we are looking at the dumb Freedom Tower. <laughs> right. So, like, 
I think one of the other really interesting things about New York is that, and this is just a fucked up thing, proximity to fucked upness in New York makes for more magical possibilities. Like post 9-11 was probably a very magical time. I was already, I, I was on a plane to Florida. Like they'd kick me out of the city. <laughs> they, they, this is, I, they kicked me out of the city eventually to go to California. So I feel you. And, uh, and then like when I was a kid, it was still shitty and scary. And that was magical. And of course in the seventies, you know, like you're talking about the dawn of punk rock and hip hop because it was so fucked up. And I always believed, and it doesn't look like I was right about this, that post COVID there would be a magical slice of heaven. I had hoped, and it seemed like actually like kind of within COVID, going especially like on the east side, that shit got real real for a sec. Like friends were telling me that they felt like because everybody had left the city, everybody who could leave the city had left the city, and it was kind of like a creepy ghost town. Did you feel that? Well, it's funny. The other day. Like, I, you know, I work at Katz's, and one of the guys I work with uh, lives on Avenue C and 4th Street. And, uh, and he's, like, a creative... He's, he's a guy I used to do creative stuff with. He did The Last Jewish Waiter with me, and, and uh, very talented artist, and he lives on Avenue C. And me and him are walking... Uh, we are just w- talking about Katz's stuff, and we're walking down 4th Street to Avenue C. And he's like, dude, are you sure you want to come down this way? And I'm like, what's the big deal? He's like, I don't think you know what it's like anymore. And I was like, nah, no big deal. And he's like, everyone's smoking crack all night, blah, blah, blah. I was like, dude, don't worry about it. We get to Avenue C, and I'm talking about Long Island, and I'm talking about, I think I might have been talking about my meeting and a contractor guy I knew, maybe my sponsor. And then I hear some dude say, I know a contractor guy, too. And I turn around, and there's some dude looking super scary, PCP-ish, repeating what I'm saying. And I'm like, I got to go. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's funny, because we're like, it was so sick, and we were so badass. And it was magical, magical, magical. And then like now, after being you know, kind of like, I feel like I have turned into massage kale. <laughs> like, like my, you know, after being kind of drip fed cold brew coffee and like doing yoga every day for a fucking year and a half, like I'm actually totally spineless. <laughs> That's funny. Cause I got the, cause I grew up fearful cause I should be, you know, and I'm on Avenue C and fourth street with my friend and the old, I was like an antelope on the plains <laughs> where I, it kicked in that I could be in danger. And I was like, that's part of the magical feeling. That's the bad part of the magical feeling of New York. But let's get back to the days of yore when you were young and snorting too much coke with Sneaky Pete on the slip and slide karate school in Soho. What was the, like, what was, where did your addiction go? I mean, it was really fast. And I think I, I blame, or blame is the wrong word. I thank the speed of my demise to the fact that like I definitely have the genetics for it and my mom kind of knew what to look out for because her whole family is somehow addicted to something. Um, maybe not whole family, but a large part of her family is has a gene pool of addiction. And um, so yeah, like in very short order, I'd kind of gone from, you know, being like, if socially awkward and highly emotionally sensitive, <laughs> like horse showing like jazz band playing kid to like only interested in nightlife (laughs) like basically entirely nocturnal um putting on put on academic academic probation from the school that my parents were paying for so again this is all like you know full disclosure it's all a question of like absurd privilege 
to even have a, a recovery story like this, you know, to be able to like ha have arrested the disease in time um, and to have ha had people with enough leverage in my life to be like, we will cut you off both financially and emotionally if you continue your behavior. But I mean, in the reality of, of what that looked like kind of just before intervention was academic probation, um, I was really like I could not be trusted in any way shape or form like my parents had taken my keys My partner knew that I was cheating on him with my drug dealer a different one than sneaky Pete now um, Like it didn't and I think it, it's it's meaningful that it like didn't matter What I wanted to show up for it didn't matter like the kind of person I wanted to be that like ultimately like all of my rent money would be spent on drugs all of my time, like the only thing that could actually get me to leave the house was the promise of drugs or sex or validation or money to get drugs. You know, and like I had started DJing before I started using um, and that was very important to me. Like I was really into it. I was very passionate about it. But like, you know, it's you have a problem when the, the nightclub owners are like, you're showing up for work late. Work starts at 11 p.m. <laughs> like and you know, I, I felt like I couldn't kind of get, I was doing um, like all night long sets at kind of shitty bars in the Lower East Side and like I couldn't get through an hour of a set without like putting on a seven minute song, running to the bathroom to use. And if I could, if there was a bathroom line, I would just like duck below the, the DJ table, you know? It was like, it's getting kind of like not cute. But like how... I know that, like, and I wasn't a fucking industrial techno DJ or a deep house DJ or a, or any kind of DJ. You know what I mean? I played in, like, nerdy ska bands or, like, nerdy rock and roll bands. And still, the legend of being a drug addict musician was, like, exciting to me. And, like, and I, when we go jam, I would get high. And, like, even if I was just smoking weed or if I was taking pills or if I was tripping or if I was shooting dope... It was part of the, I don't know, the, the, the allure, the culture. But as an actual industrial techno DJ, I think it's almost built in. Like, how, how does it play together? I mean, at that moment, I was not, like, it, like as, as I mentioned, like, the, <laughs> the SoundCloud description is wrong. I've evolved since then. And I think that for me, at, at least the kind of what I was playing in, you know, 2004 is different than what I'm playing now. But... There was still this kind of post-electric clash, post-club kid, like music that sounds like doing cocaine <laughs> vibe. And I mean, you know, it was like for a while it was very fun and kind of I felt like it made me feel made me like go to after parties that were, you know, about that, about doing drugs and like listening to loud music. But at the same time, like I, w I was essentially a baby, you know, like I. <laughs> I, I don't think I had kind of gotten into any level of actual fame. And I, and I could see from, from what people were telling me, from what promoters and people who were trying to book me, who are also addicts in a lot of cases, were telling me, was like, you're starting to look like a party girl. Like, we're not going to take you seriously. You know, so it, was, it already wasn't really working out for me because I could not keep my shit together. Like, it wasn't cute, you know? So that's not really a thing. The way it's a thing for like a junkie rock and roller to be almost have more not I mean like almost more cred. It's like the the mythology of a guitar player like like Slash or Johnny Thunders or if you're some dude who can play guitar like that and you're fucked up on dope, it kind of adds to the ethos. Is that because you did you, you did you ever uh, did you know DJ DB? Yeah, actually, I texted him this morning. 
<laughs> what up? Like I, a friend gave me a DJ DB mixtape that I had in my car when I was like just getting out of sober living. I was allowed allowed a car, and it's it remind it's like it was called the prettiest breakbeat, and highly recommended. You can find it if you Google it. But like for me, that especially New York New York City's um, club culture, like unless you were doing kind of very like dance floor oriented music. A lot of the shitty bars I was playing in were kind of open format. Like you could play like Missy Elliott into Kraftwerk, into like whatever kind of cool house music electric clash is happening at the moment. So it was a lot less like kind of genre formal. And I do think, I mean, obviously like since getting sober, my understanding of the level of work I have to do in order to kind of keep my nose clean in a very literal sense in the program, like in order to go into the into the most sordid places on earth <laughs> of of nightlife around the world, is like I don't think I knew about that going in. And like as as I was getting sober, everybody around me was like, Can you please not be a DJ? Like that's a very dangerous thing for a 20-year-old who has like 30 days free of cocaine to want to do with your life. And I was a monster, so I was like, no. <laughs> Well, you knew what you wanted to do. I mean, DJ DB, like, got sober before he ever DJed, and then he, like, DJed crazy, like, uh, psychedelic house music, acid house and jungle and all that stuff, and never tripped ecstasy to it, which I thought was interesting. What was the end of the using like? Like, how bad did it get? Like, and I don't, you don't have to, like, I, I see you looking out into the sky, like, my bar isn't low enough for Adobe. But whatever it was, it was low enough. You know what I mean? Like, what was the end like? Because everyone has their end, and the end is different for everybody. My end, I was just fucking smoking weed and taking a few pills in the end, you know? No, I mean, as I mentioned, like, the, the goals that I had set for myself, like, as a promising young woman were getting, obviously, farther and farther away. But so, too, like, I didn't, like, I... Physically, it was getting gross. Like, I was starting to get abscesses, which is, like, not cute and should be... Why? Why? Because I was, like, I was shooting cocaine a little bit, but I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> so that was disgusting and painful. And I think also there was, like, a weird staph infection variant going around at the time. So, like, it was nasty. You know, it was not, like, fun drugs. It was, like, in order to kind of keep my habit going, I have to do things that are physically dangerous for me. <laughs> Similarly, I was like in debt to a bunch of drug dealers, and like if I got money, then it, the choice was money for drugs or money for rent. Of course, the rent money would go for drugs. You know, um, I was cheating on my partner at the time, and like he knew it, and it was like a shit show. You know, like I, I, I think a lot of us in in addiction do this thing where it's like it talks about in the book that like you're unable to differentiate the true from the false. And I would start, I was starting to get very confused about like the lies I was telling because I would have to convince that myself that they were true in order to live with myself. And I couldn't, like I, I like was either so numb, like all the time, either so fucking numb that I couldn't feel anything. Like when I felt like I should be feeling something, like when my grandmother died, for instance, like I show, I remember I showed up and this is like not dumb shit, this, or, or like a fun bottom, you know, it's like, my, I, had wanted to, you know, like do a bump and go go home at 10 and instead it was fucking 8 a.m. and my mom was coming to pick me up to see my grandmother in the hospital. And because I was still so fucked up at 8 a.m., I remember I took a Xanax and then made her stop so I could get a, a water or something on the way, but I got a, a bunch of tiny chocolate liqueurs 
so I hoped the Xanax would fucking kick in, and I couldn't, of course, uh, legally buy alcohol. So I, <laughs> I ate a bunch of chocolate liqueurs, hoping that the, the tiny amount of alcohol in the chocolate would make the Xanax kick in so I could come down a little bit before I see my grandmother. But instead, I passed out and like could barely be roused to to essentially say goodbye, you know? And like I think my grandmother died like a month before I got sober and like it's an amend I still am actively making to my mom, you know? Just for like abandoning her at that moment. But it was just like being a shitty person and me thinking like all my bad decisions were a result of me being a really shitty person, not the result of me being an active addict and the disease I had no control over, you know? And, it, and I went down really like an anvil out of an airplane, you know? <laughs> it was like, it was fast and it was shitty. Yeah, that sounds brutal and uh, very painful. And emo like I sensed the, you know, that's deep emotional fucking duress. Um, but that's the shit that happens, you know what I mean? So from there, like, what was the last day of using? Like, when did you agree to get better? Like, when did, when did the switch turn in your head that you could actually be open to getting well at age 20? Um, so it's actually, like, I do feel like my last weekend out was, like, a god shot. Like, um, I had gone to, my parents were divorcing also at this time, which was like a great fucking reason to use at them, you know? We love a resentment and we love like feeling <laughs> like just injustice is happening to us. And it's like the reality is, it's like, it was none of my fucking business, you know? And my active addiction certainly was not helping my parents' marriage, that's for sure. Um, so we had gone to like family counseling because they were starting to get pretty concerned because as I mentioned, like, Creepy abscesses, academic probation, taking away my house keys, <laughs> like not cool. And um, they had, uh, I, they made me pee in a cup, and I was, you know, deeply offended because I had definitely done drugs that day. And um, then they said, well, that was a Wednesday, and then they said, we'll we'll test you again on Sunday, and if it's not clean, they'll you'll have some splaining to do, essentially. <laughs> And so from Wednesday to Sunday, I was trying to detox at my drug dealer's house, which is, of course, the best possible place to detox, as we all know. Well, hold on. Hold on. So on Wednesday, you test positive, and they're not bugged out. They're like, okay, because did you know that your dad, like, fucked with stuff, or did he just know that that was a possibility? If my parents even found something in my... I was full-on drug addict, but if they had known anything, it would have been like the end of the world. So they found coke in your system. They had found coke in my system before and I had managed to pass it off as like recreational drug use because I am a DJ and a promising student. Like, you know, like right. explaining, you know, we're so good at fucking like bullshitting. <laughs> like, and so they didn't actually tell me that they found, they, they, I tested positive. They, they made me pee in a cup and they, they didn't test it in front of me because I think their machinations of sending me to rehab were already in place in retrospect. And so... But I, I had like I saw that I had I was kind of being being painted. I'd painted myself into a corner because I, you know, like there was no possible way I was going to test clean in in four days with the amount of drugs I was doing. So I spent a lot of time <laughs> drinking cranberry juice and trying to Google how to buy people's urine, which in the early internet was it was like on Craigslist. <laughs> like, and again, like I was not I was not a very like not very wily at this point. So if you were to go on Craigslist in the early <laughs> aughts, right? That's what we're saying. 
like how would one score urine? I, I never scored anything good on Craigslist. I remember people would be like, you can get dope on Craigslist if you look for diesel and all this shit they would say. So how would I score clean urine on Craigslist? I mean, I was like, this did not work out for me. <laughs> Let's preface it with that. But I was just like Googling like how to buy clean urine. <laughs> I don't even know if Google was a thing. Perhaps it was like Yahoo. But um, and going on Craigslist and just typing in clean urine <laughs> to like and I, then I was like, how do I know if this is a woman's urine? And then then how do I heat it up? How do you know if it's even clean <laughs> or urine? Voila. <laughs> so. <laughs> And so I ended up not buying anybody's pee. And, and also, not, they didn't even test me on Sunday. They just had an intervention. Do you, do you not know about the Wizenator? What's the Wizenator? The Wizenator is this device where you put someone else's urine in the... I don't know if they make it for women, now that I think about it. Because it's a device that they, you, you wear somewhere on your body that heats, yeah. it heats the urine... And then it comes, some of them come with the fake dick for the guy so they can be tested in front of somebody. But I think I had it with a tube. And I, I mean, like, I never used it because I'm such a fucking mess that all I could imagine was spilling someone's warm urine all over me. <laughs> yeah, somebody's, somebody else's urine warmed with your own body heat. Yeah, I, don't, they, I, I didn't even have a chance to test my, my theories, which were, at, like... I think, okay, so wait, to back up, therapy took a urine sample but didn't test it in front of me because, again, like, I was pretty sure. I, in retrospect, <laughs> they had already made a plan. Because um, it turns out an intervention takes planning. Now we know. Um, and then so I tried not to use, tried to detox, and then uh, I had gigs Friday and Saturday and ended up kind of, like, trying really hard not to use, telling everybody around me not, sell, not to sell to me, and finding a way to use anyway. And it was the first time, and like thankfully, this is the first and last time that I saw that like it didn't matter what I wanted. Like I had a really hard consequence coming at me that I was, it was, I was very clear about, and it did not fucking matter. I would still find a way to fucking use. Like, uh, and it was the first time that it was clear to me that it, like, it, was, not, it was no longer a choice. You know, because if I had any kind of choice in the matter, I would have chosen not to use. I was trying every available facility to not use, and I still fucking used. And, you know, long story short, there was no mysterious drug test on Sunday. There was an intervention with a bunch of people that loved me, telling me that they could no longer be part of my life if I continued to do drugs, and did not take their uh, offer of help. And <laughs> that the rest is history. Where was the intervention? In this living room, actually. <laughs> It was no famous interventionist. It wasn't like Jeff Van Vanderhausen or Candy, whatever her name is, from Intervention, was it? It was Heather Hayes. Shout out Heather Hayes. She was on the like the crazy like Atlanta um, intervention episodes, and I also like because at this point I was like highly paranoid. <laughs> I was convinced that I was like, where are the cameras? Like I had also taken apart my cell phone and put different parts of it, because it was like a Nokia brick, different parts of it in different rooms, because I was very convinced my phone was being tapped, and like had all the fucking creepy ass cocaine, like you better draw the blinds all the time, like lots of peeking out blinds, like it was getting fucking like hectic. So I was very surprised that I was having an intervention and yet was not on the television show intervention. <laughs> yeah, that seems like, I, I, I can imagine sharing that kind of feeling. I, I'm dying to get interventionists from intervention on Dopey, but I can't get it done for some reason. Um, so, you do? Yeah. So the intervention was a success. 
It was indeed a success. They fucking sent me to treatment for forever, like for like nine months, because they were like, she wants to be a DJ. She's a 20-year-old cocaine addict. Like, let's keep her in for as long as possible. And like, it was, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say my treatment experience was great, but it was fucking effective, you know? And I'm really like, I, it definitely felt like too long at the time, but I, I feel like it was helpful to have that much of a foundation of like everything has to change. It worked. It, it, you know, it, it worked is the, is the bottom line. And then, you know, your career kind of took off after you, you got sober. How does, like, how does that play out? And it's like the idea of people, places, and things when you're a DJ. I brought up DJ DB because he, like, didn't have that issue somehow. I, I don't know. I still don't really understand. You know, DJ DB was my sponsor for a minute. Um, I still don't really understand how that works. How did it work for you when you're, like, when did you start DJing? Did you start DJing, like, at, when you got sober, did you start DJing, like, at the treatment, like, the, 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 the dances or anything? Was it anything like that? <laughs> so, like, you know, for the first treatment center, because I went to, like, a treatment center and then another one for kind of more extended care, and they were, like, the first treatment center had no lyrical music of any kind. So, like, that was a no-go. We just sang, um, was it the Jackson Brown? No, Stand By You? No. What is it? Uh, the one about being a friend. <laughs> oh, that's oh. James Taylor. Yeah, sorry. You sorry, Jackson Brown. Yes. Was it You Got a Friend? You just call out my No, name. was it? Yeah, maybe. Carol King, and you know wherever I am. Jackson Brown is running on MC... <laughs> running on empty imagine that was the rehab song <laughs> um so anyway we could only do sing-alongs we could have no lyrical music other than songs that everybody know about friendship and um and then the second treatment center i had this like cdj this is also dating myself uh a new mac new mac cdj that like i um I demanded <laughs> as part of my like my things to be like that I needed in rehab and they were like no and so they used it as kind of like a carrot on a string like if you do all your chores and you attend XYZ meetings and you're very very good and you get no like demerits then we'll give you your seat you will give you your mixer <laughs> and so it worked and one of my rehab counselors was actually like a crazy he was a friend of DJ AM's was it Moby <laughs> no, Moby. I got sober before Moby. Hi, Moby. Um, have you had Moby on Dopey? No, but I interviewed Moby super high. <laughs> like, me and him went to the same college, and I met him super high, and I interviewed him, and I think he was fucked up, but I was really in bad shape. If you have a Moby hookup, like, that's the connection I want more than anything, because I'm sure he won't remember, but, but to me, it was, for me, it would be great. <laughs> I make no promises, but I would I personally would like to listen to that interview, so let's try to make it happen. Um hi Mobs. <laughs> Sorry, we my 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 friend and former production partner and I used to have we, we did a, a Moby remix on spec, but every version of it was just called like Mobs One, Mobs Two. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um Mobs, sober man. Um so DJing and rehab. DJing and rehab. And I <laughs> there, was, there was a really famous, and it was like a fancy rehab, so very wealthy um, uh, fellow, fellow, what would you call it, client, patient there who was like 
who I was in war with because every time I tried to DJ, he was like, this is abhorrent. <laughs> and like public enemy number one, like on at least two fourth steps. <laughs> but so much to his consternation, constantly trying to DJ in rehab. And eventually, like as soon as we started to kind of get, I also got kind of shipped as far away from New York as possible to Los Angeles. And um, at a certain point had to start to, like, I was getting passes to go out and to kind of dip my toes. Like, there was, like, a 10 p.m. curfew, but I would still kind of dip my toes in and, like, try to go to places that had music before and, and try and figure out if, like, I was into drugs. Like, if that's the reason I like fucking nightclubs so much, if that's the reason I wanted to be a DJ, or if I actually, like, loved music and loved this part of connection, of, like, f feeling a part of a community and feeling like I, I fucking love music. And it was the latter, you know, like... But it definitely kind of took some reflection of like, why do you want to do this? And what are you willing to do to be able to do this as a sober woman? Was it tempting? Like, like when did full on sobriety take hold? Like where you're like, where you're like down, you know what I mean? Like, I know for me, I had such a different experience than so many people because um, I don't think I was even interested in sobriety when I got sober. I was just fucking, I was just trying to, to do it because too much stuff had gone wrong. Like, when did it take hold in you? I remember, like, quite, like, within the kind of first week, because, again, like, I had a kind of, not a, I wouldn't say white light experience, but I was very clear that, like, the, I had no, I no longer had a choice, and that was a very strong convincer, but I wasn't, I was, like, kind of surrendered to the idea that my life would be shitty <laughs> and small and boring, and I would be, like, a sad, sober nun who maybe was an accountant. <laughs> you know, like, that was my idea of hell, but I was like, whatever, I guess I won't die. Um, How did you get out of that idea, though? Well, I, I started, like, within my first week, I started to kind of have, like, I could feel things again, you know? I, like, I remember I felt, like, I had a pink cloud experience. I felt, like, excited to be alive very quickly. And, like, even, I, I had this plan that like I would stay sober for a year and on my birthday, on my first every year, I would just get one year at a time, like one year and then use for a day and then another year. Yeah, this was my great plan. And I remember being in treatment and then them asking us, I'm not sure why they were asking us this, but it turns out it was an insightful question. Like if you had one week to live, what would you do? And the, it was the first time I saw that my answer wasn't like a shit ton of drugs. Like my answer would be to like be as present as possible for that week. You know, which was like news. And then when, when you look at that, you realize that, that you have something else. It's funny because like I've been trying to diet, right? And, I, and I've been dieting pretty good. But like still, like the other night, like I hurt my foot and somehow I convinced Linda to go get me chocolate chocolate chip ice cream. And I ate Chinese food and like I ate a lot of it. And the next day I was like, I was happy to, to go back on the diet, which is something that I'm not used to. It's new. That's a totally new thing for me. So, like, that idea of being, like, I'll use once a year and then get back to it. I, I'm a tr I like that idea. That was my great idea, you know, and, like, how many great ideas. Like, when did I stop when I wanted to stop? I've already named two situations in which that was not possible, you know? Like, it didn't really matter what I wanted. So this idea, it quickly became clear as I got a little bit physical, a physical separation from the drug and, like, everything that I thought was important about my life. You know, I remember being, like telling my counselors, like, look at my MySpace, I'm a big deal. And they were like, no, fuck off. 
You know, this, I think like it was definitely like an ego wound to be like, everything that you think is important is not fucking important. Like, you, you think you have problems. Like, this whole thing is a fucking privilege. You know, and I, I, I kind of got it. Like, I kind of, it kind of clicks this idea that like, I actually do want to be sober because I see that if I want my life to go anywhere, like I mentioned, I, I wasn't like, my, my drug use was not making me hot shit. Like it was, it was great for like nine months and then it kind of like went down fast. And so did your career as a DJ get like better afterwards? And like, were you, were, in the beginning, were there people like hanging around you, getting fucked up? Were you like, fuck, I wish I was doing that? Um, there was a couple, like, yes, I mean, I was like, again, I got sober at a very young age, my career didn't have a chance to really take off, I just knew that, like, this is what I wanted to do with my life, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it, including, like, getting and staying sober, and including, like, doing the work in order to have the freedom to do this job without drugs, right? But, you know, later on, I, there was definitely social situations where I felt like, um, I was... I didn't necessarily want to use, but I felt like in order to be in those in the circumstances that I would need to kind of make my way in the biz <laughs> that I would have to use. And like, I'm so grateful for like a foundation of recovery that like, let me know that I could choose sobriety over those situations and trust that it would be okay. You know, like I remember I was at a, I was an after party on New Year's day with a bit like my, my DJ partner at the time um, and this big producer that we really wanted to impress. And there was a lot of drugs around. And I was probably like four, four years sober. Was it Dr. Dre? <laughs> it was not. <laughs> I wish it was Dr. Dre <laughs> or Dr. Drew. Either way. <laughs> um, uh, 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 it was not. But like I saw my partner at the time who was not sober, do, like DJ partner, creative partner, do a line off a CD case. And... I, th I think I like, I was, <laughs> that whole thing about like recoiling as if from a hot flame being placed in the, uh, like if tempted, like I think I dropped, <laughs> like th I smashed like three glasses of, you know, soft drinks in an effort to like leave the room because I felt like kind of compromised in that position. And I think I just ran like, like a gazelle or a lunatic, <laughs> like out the door because, you know, it, it, at that point, I I was attached enough to my recovery above all else that like I knew that I, I felt I felt like I was in danger at that moment and I got out of there. And like again, it's the it's the greatest privilege of my life in recovery to like be the rave sponsor. You know, to be the person who's like, guess what? It can totally be fucking fun and it can to you can totally go anywhere in the world a free person can go and not have to use. And I've seen videos of you spinning and dancing and fucking having a good time and and DJ DB is another rave sponsor it's like it's possible like I don't know like whenever I look you know because I've been talking to more and more people who are struggling and like it's a hard thing the idea of freedom and possibility are like strange concepts when you don't have them you know what I mean and you can't really imagine them and I used to be exactly the other way and I'd be like well imagine standing in the corner and looking into it or turning around and standing in the corner and looking out of it it's like it's crazy um I really ap appreciate your whole thing because like I knew how sober you actually are like 
I know that you're interested in it. You know what I mean? And I know that you appreciate it. And like, do you think your sex life has been kinkier or less kinky since becoming sober? And your eyes went infinitely wider on the question. I mean, definitely fucking more kinky. I think like, and again, I, I kind of wish this had happened. I wish I knew about this earlier that like, a god of my understanding fucking like loves all of me, including this part that's like a fucked up kinky perv. That's just like, yeah, do whatever you want. Like, don't cause harm, and like, do whatever you want. And it, if the harm is consensual, which is like, that's not personally my thing, but it might be somebody else's. Like, go for it. You know. <laughs> I'd be very angry at myself if I didn't ask for a little bit of like dirt on being a fucked up kinky perv because that's the third time you've said that phrase so and, and like i would be even prudish on my show if i didn't explore where the kinky fucked up pervness goes a little bit great question <laughs> is that a question no um i mean for me like i and this is a, in a lot of my work um as a songwriter and a producer it's very like for me i the beautiful part about kink or BDSM is that like it's not linear it's kind of um in my experience it's more of a spider web that like you can be interested in one thing and hook up with somebody who's interested in that thing but also other things and you can become interested in the other things it's like it's um it's a really dynamic and fun way to play like what does BDSM stand for BDSM stands for bondage discipline or domination submission masochism did you hear the episode we had with this Melissa Phoebos who wrote the the Super book? Dom? Yeah. Yeah, that was a great episode. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, so are you Dom or are you sub? I'm sub. <laughs> I mean, I would I I would be like a Dom under duress. Like I would if I was forced to top, I would top. But it's not. It's very much out of my wheelhouse. That's like because I think I I like con I like control. I like. Uh, power. I like wielding power over groups. That's why I, I DJ. <laughs> um, to have that kind of taken away is a huge relief. That's so interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I just gave the mic, my, mic back to Dave, and he's like, uh-huh. <laughs> that was you dominating, me, me, me subbing, me bottoming on Dopey, which is a terrible concept. Now, 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 I, now I'm back. Um, so what, did you have any subby stuff in in the using era or did that all come out afterwards oh for sure and i mean i think that like do people say subby or is i just invent that no that's a thing okay. <laughs> you're within the lexicon of of kink and fetish language um but yeah there was definitely like a big part of me that really liked that and liked kind of roughness and like kind of being handled essentially like kind of like very physical interaction. So yeah, there was definitely a lot of that, but I think I tried to fucking super subvert it when I got sober and like wanted to like have like what I thought were healthy sexual relationships. And I think also for me, um, like as I kind of matured, as I, I became a semi-adult, that it was this world like of BDSM is very helpful because negotiation is really explicit. Like, instead of having kind of, like, playing games of, like, you text somebody, and then they wait fucking five days to text you back. Or, like, after you've had sex, you're like, really? Is this, the, is this the fucking game we're playing where no one is telling us it's a game? It's not explicit. I don't know where I stand in your life. I'm super uncomfortable. Like, it's very helpful for me to have, like, a very clear idea of expectations and boundaries.
and to be able to kind of show up like for me I, I like service like I like the ability to kind of eroticize anything I can fucking eroticize making breakfast you know like it's beautiful to kind of be able to put that in a relationship in a very explicit way and to kind of have um, a frame to work within that like A, I feel safe because I know kind of where I stand all the time. And B, I feel like I'm able to kind of make just like make gestures of love that that in other circumstances might feel like really fucking bizarre and over the top, but like because of the dynamic of the relationship, it feels like like normal or safe. Explain that to me. You know, if you're in a kind of what we would call a vanilla relationship, like a norm n normative sexual relationship, no dynamic, to kind of like make a grand gesture of like being of real service to somebody, like whatever that looks like and not in the kind of AA sense of service, but like, you know, you're going to make somebody breakfast and you're going to kind of be like, for me again, like I, I am definitely like kind of a militant feminist, <laughs> like, this this idea of like serving a man is kind of like repulsive to me on the surface, but within a power exchange relationship, where like this is actually this turns into an erotic love language. I think I'm missing service. I think I'm missing a lot of service in my life. That's something for you to negotiate with your partner. <laughs> she's not. She's not going to go for it. Um, but I found this all to be. Uh, really interesting and really fun and uh i wish you know i'm not even gonna say it but i wish i had fucking had the other cable me too are you just annoyed the shit out of you no it's kind of hilarious but i really 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 loved uh your story and i loved the hanging out is there anything you want to say uh about addiction submission recovery uh industrial techno versus uh deep house before you go yeah just that like if you're struggling in recovery, that like, I, I hope that you know like what's on the other side of that struggle if you just fucking stick it out because it's such a fucking beautiful life and like, I really hope you don't miss it. I totally agree. And thank you, Louisa. Ah! <laughs> Good times. So that was Louisa. What did you guys think? I thought it was awesome. I thought she was awesome. I thought disgusting. A sex inventory is just a, it's a remarkable thing. It is not talked about enough. And I would love to know what you guys thought about it. So send an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And what about, was it, was it distracting that there was only one microphone? Let me know about that. Let me know if the scrubbiness of the production is getting to you. I don't want to say it again. I've heard a lot of complaints that I haven't opened up the box of gear when you guys were so generous to buy me the gear, and I accept that. It will get opened. You know, Tuesday, I'm going to say it again. Tuesday is my birthday. If you want to give me a birthday present, you know, give me money at Patreon. No, just give me, get me off the hook for not opening the box of gear. Because eventually it will get opened. And I am going to try to open it on my birthday as my birthday present to you guys. But I want to tell you guys a kind of funny story that the Louisa thing, you know, reminded me of because she's a DJ. A few weeks ago, 
I was, uh, I was asked to speak at my meeting, at my morning meeting that I go to very often. And I was honored to speak. They didn't do, they, for years, they didn't do speaker meetings, but on Saturdays, they have people give, you know, their qualifications. So I qualified on Saturday and I told my story. And there was this dude there who raised his hand and uh, he said he's been struggling. Uh, and he used to do heroin and, and, you know, weed was probably his drug of choice at the end. And he was going to leave that meeting with a sponsor. And I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scoop this guy up so I can grow my little flock of sponsees. But it, uh, it didn't happen that way. And I knew what was going to happen because my sponsor was at the meeting and he wound up sharing. And my sponsor's share totally beat my qualification. And by the end of it, and they're both Long Island guys and whatever, by the end of it, my sponsor scooped up my potential sponsee, which made me feel, I don't know, it made me feel a certain kind of way, which is just gross in itself. Like, this is the way it's supposed to be, and I shouldn't be jealous of somebody snatch. And then my sponsor says, oh, I'm going to try to give him to you because he had heroin, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, you keep him. Fuck it. And, uh, and then I go to a meeting the next week, and, uh, and he's there. And it turns out, I was like, he's like, oh, I got back to work. And, you know, COVID is starting to ease up. So I got back to work. And I said, oh, what do you do? And he said, I'm a, I'm a DJ. I DJ parties. And I was, at the time, I was reading the Beastie Boys book. And I was like, oh, uh, do you know how to, like, mix records? Like, can you, like, mix one song into the other? And he's like, he, like, looks at me. He, like, looks down at me. He looks at me, like, over his sunglasses. He's like... Everyone knows how to do that. And I was like, oh, well, I'm reading the Beastie Boys book, and it's like I would so love to be able to mix mix turntables, you know, scratch and mix and, and like, do that. It's like a fantasy of mine. He's like, oh, I don't really like the Beastie Boys. And I was like, what? I, like, I still to this, I mean, like, it's funny because I imagine there are people in the Dopey Nation who don't like the Beastie Boys. But that strikes me as crazy. It's like, for me, you know, I might not like all of the Beastie Boys' music, and they're not even called the Beastie Boys. I think the Beastie Boys and the Grateful Dead are actually Beastie Boys and Grateful Dead. But I can't just say Beastie Boys. I have to say the Beastie Boys. Anyway, I can't say that I love all, all of the Beastie Boys' music, but I can't say anything besides how much I love the Beastie Boys. So this dude saying he doesn't like them, it's like, it's like me being a Christian and him saying he doesn't like Christ or something. Not that I am devoted to the Beastie Boys, but I can't even believe it. And I said, oh, well, who do you like? And he says he likes Stone Temple Pilots and fucking, fucking Matchbox 20 and Pearl Jam. And I'm just like, ugh. And I was like, ugh. And then some guy standing next to me was like, the first record I bought was Limp Biscuit," And I was like, ugh. And basically, I was a, a New York City snob in my glory. But it reminded me of something that had happened to me in my life. Because this dude was a... Um, I know you guys like Pearl Jam, but I don't like Pearl Jam. Like, I don't like Eddie Vedder. I mean, I like him on, the, on that movie soundtrack. He did that um, Into the Wild soundtrack. But uh, I heard him on Howard Stern show, and he says, he doesn't say ukulele. He says, ukulele, because he's so fucking cool and, you know, and growly and shit. And it's like, I, I, can do without, I can do without Eddie Vedder. I could do without Stone Temple Pilots, although I like that one. Uh, 
Leaving on a Sunday, only yesterday. I like that song. I can do without Matchbox 20. Anyway, I had an experience in my life, and I guess it was a traumatic experience. It was by bar mitzvah, okay? And I didn't even want to have a bar mitzvah because I was like, I didn't want to be the center of attention. Like, it was, it was too much for me. And my mother really wanted a big party. And she said to me, you know, David, if you don't want to have a bar mitzvah, sign a contract saying you don't. This is what my mom did with everything. If I didn't want to have braces, she said, sign a contract that you don't want to have braces. And then when your teeth are all crooked, I'll show you the contract. And I was like, I'll sign. And she did the same thing with the bar mitzvah. And I was like, give me the contract. I'll sign it. I don't want to do it. And she's like, you're doing it anyway. And then she started to say, it's not your party, David. It's my party. And then I was like, okay, it's her party. Well, for her party, she hired these entertainment DJs, and they were really cheesy. They were probably from Long Island. They had, like, the thick Keith Hernandez mustache, and they wore these, like, tuxedos with probably, like, leopard skin cummerbunds. They were just corny fucks. You know what I'm saying? They were, and I, and I, it, I was so embarrassed. And the embarrassment hit its apex when in the middle of the party, they did this routine where they put on oversized sunglasses and he's like, he calls himself Captain Bar Mitzvah and he did this rap, which was, I'm Captain Bar Mitzvah. And I was just dead. I was destroyed. Because like somehow I couldn't make fun of him. Somehow I became the loser who was Captain Bar Mitzvah. And all my friends... We're making fun of the DJ, but somehow, like, I think this is where my alcoholic really manifested, and somehow I thought they were making fun of me, and I, I just felt so shamed by this entertainment DJ. So when the dude at the meeting, who doesn't like the Beastie Boys, told me he was an entertainment DJ, it didn't, it didn't surprise me. Also, also, at my bar mitzvah, my shame, this is just, this is just some serious, like, I'm revealing something here. I was so insecure at my bar mitzvah. And if you guys are not familiar with what a bar mitzvah is, a bar mitzvah is a Jewish rite of passage where a boy is now a man. And I was 13. Now I'm 46, and I'm, I don't know if I'm a man yet. But at 12 to 13, I definitely was not a man. And part of the tradition is they hoist the bar mitzvah boy on a chair you know, the, the party goers hoist the bar mitzvah boy onto a chair and I wouldn't go on the chair because my self image was so fucked up. I thought I was too fat to get picked up in the chair and that I would fall out of the chair or they wouldn't be able to pick me up. And I wasn't even particularly overweight. That's how fucked up my brain was. So this dude at the meeting brought it all back to me. So that's me sharing a very, very, very personal experience. So I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know. I felt I needed to tell this story. This story has been on the tip of my tongue for a long time. And I feel like maybe I revealed too much. So I got a very special voicemail that I want to play. It is from an author from Brooklyn who lives in Staten Island. He's got a great accent. His name is Thomas Figlioli. I hope I said that right, Tommy. And he has a book called That's What Junkies Do. And here is his voicemail. What's up, Dave? What's up, Dopey Nation? It's Tommy from Staten Island calling in with a dopey story for you. 
Uh, I say I live in Staten Island now, but the story occurs in Brooklyn, New York, around 2004. That's where I grew up, and that's where most of my story takes place. The year was 2004, and by now I had developed about an 800-milligram-a-day Oxycontin habit, and most of those Oxycontins were taken from my aunt, who, God rest her soul, was sick with stage 4 lung and breast cancer. Uh, and she passed away in March of 2004. My supply had run out, and I started taking to the streets to find what I needed. Um, long story short, no job, no money, and uh, the hustle getting too hard. You know, I really couldn't find the Oxycontin. So I just started drinking and smoking weed and detoxing myself. And um, every day I would go down to this deli on my corner. I went in there as a little kid to buy baseball cards and soda and all that good stuff. And as I got older, I would go in there every day and I would buy beer and I would put it on credit. And then at the end of the month, I would pay the guy with a bad check. Eventually he had enough of that, he threw me out of the store. So I had to start going to another deli and uh, when I started going to that other deli, the man who owned it with his son, they were two Russian guys, and um, you know I got friendly with them, and they were into some illegal stuff. So I started basically transporting drugs and money for them back and forth to various locations, and in turn, they would give me free coke, free weed, and they would give me a couple of bucks here and there. I still wanted my opiate fix, and um, to get that, the guy hooked me up with an old man in the neighborhood who would sell me his methadone and clonopin prescription every month. So every day I'm drinking, I'm smoking weed, I'm taking clonopins, I'm taking methadone. Needless to say, I'm in a blackout pretty much the entire time I'm doing this. And uh, one day, still can't figure out what happened or how it happened. I go out of my daily routine, go to the deli, buy my six-pack of Budweiser Tall Boys, do my transports, get my Coke, get my weed, take my clonopins, take my methadone. And uh, days going on as is. Um, about 12 to 15 hours later, I open my eyes and I'm laying on my living room floor in my mother's house and I look to my left and there's a gigantic black Labrador retriever laying next to me and he's eating out of a tray of mussels and marinara sauce. And there's mussels and there's marinara sauce all over me, all over my living room, all over the outside porch, all over this dog's face. And, uh, Till this day, I still don't know what happened. I know where the dog came from. The dog lived down the block at a neighbor's house where the mussels marinara came from. I still, to this day, have no idea. And um, I laugh about it still to this day. You know, it was a dangerous time, but it's a funny story that came out of it. So I hope you enjoy that. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. And toodles for Chris. So Tommy Figs with his mussels marinara. I'm gonna definitely uh, meet up with Tommy soon, and we're gonna we're gonna do something. I'm not sure what. Maybe it'll be Patreon. Maybe it'll be a show. Who knows? Yeah, check out his book. It's called "That's What Junkies Do." I cannot wait to meet Tommy. I also want to read an email before we go. I think I will read an email before we go, and it says, "Hey, Dave, here is one of my many shameful and embarrassing stories from my active alcoholic days." Thankfully, I can laugh about it. If you read this on air, please do not use my name. Okay, remember, don't use her name. A couple years ago, my husband and I flew out to Michigan for my mom's wedding. As you well know, flying is a great way for alcohol, alcoholics to justify day drinking. So we started drinking around 9 a.m. before calling a lift to take us to the airport. 
We had a few glasses of wine at the airport bar and whiskey on the plane before landing in Michigan. We had been there for all of 30 minutes before meeting up with my old high school friends for drinks at a local brewery. An unknown number of pitchers later, we went back to my friend's house to keep the party going. This friend always has drugs, and this night it happened to be DMT. He pulls out a crack pipe and explains that this is the best way to smoke it. My trip was great, but my husband's was not. He was on his back with his head shaking back and forth, making gurgling noises. So I told my friend to play Little Wing, knowing that my that Jimi Hendrix always calms him down. But instead, he started playing Little Wayne, or Lil Wayne. Don't worry, my husband was okay. But the Lil Wayne, or Lil Wayne, wasn't exactly soothing. After about 30 minutes, as my husband is coming back to reality, I decided to check my phone. I'm surprised to see it is 5 a.m. Now, in retrospect, it probably would have been a good idea to stay the night at my friend's house. But instead, my husband and I walked back to my mom's house a few blocks away. Mind you, it was pouring rain. We showed up drenched and wasted as my mom and her soon-to-be wife drank their morning coffee. I immediately went straight to the basement bedroom that we were staying in and passed out. Unbeknownst to me, my husband stayed up and told them all about the DMT. Lovely. The next morning, I woke up, stepped out of the room, and see a cooler on the floor with poop and pee in it. My first thought was, why does my mom keep a cooler full of shit and pee in her basement? Why would she do that? Then it dawns on me that either me or my husband must have pooped in it in the middle of the night. Horrified, I close the cooler, put it on a shelf, and slowly walk upstairs to assess the situation. To my delight, my mom left a note saying she went on a walk. Perfect. There was time to hide the evidence. I run back downstairs to wake up my husband. He proceeds to put his hand down the back of his pants, touch his butthole, and inspect his finger. Since it didn't have any poop on it, his conclusion was that it must have been me. I was pretty offended that he would even suggest that, but there was no time to argue. We needed to get rid of this cooler. In a panic, we take the cooler to the backyard to dump out the contents. While we're back there, my mom gets home, so we quickly throw the cooler over the fence and into the neighbor's yard before she can see what we're doing. Trying to play it cool, I asked her how her walk was. Without flinching, she asked what we did with the poop cooler. I was mortified that my sweet mother knew what we had done. Luckily, she had a good sense of humor. This did not get me sober, and to this day, I have no idea if it was me or my husband that pooped in the cooler. However, now I have 10 months and no longer wake up full of shame and regret. I'm not sure if I would have gotten sober or stepped foot into a meeting if it wasn't for you and Chris. Thank you for keeping the show going. Toodles for Chris. Best. I'm not going to say her name. I love that email. Um, I, you know, I, I'm kind of mixed on the on the the dopey stories around shitting, but this one I like. I And I like I, any dopey story with DMT, I support. Um, but mostly I love the ending. You know, it's like, uh, I feel like sometimes I forget to talk about my own recovery on the show. 
and I maybe I do it on purpose because I think it's corny when people talk about their own recovery on the show, but it's been, uh, you know, almost six years in recovery, and it's been an amazing ride, you know, and uh, so many fucking things I used to do I don't do anymore, and basically the show is designed to keep addicts company and to kind of air you guys to know that like it's possible to have fun and recovery and i'm just saying it because if you guys are new and you never heard me say it before welcome to the team thank you guys for listening i would love comments and reviews leave five star and positive reviews on itunes i don't think we've had a new review in a long time and my dad is like he's got his fucking head in the oven about that um i want you guys to do a communal prayer for the Knicks, that we come out of the first round. I would love that. I would like you guys to write emails to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us. Follow us. Follow us on social media. And um, I have weird shit that's about to come out on YouTube. So look out for that. And um, I had this fucking dream. I, I want to tell you guys before we go. I had this dream the other night about Chris. And um, I don't feel like Chris visited me in a dream or anything. It was kind of, like, depressing. I think it was, like, like kind of the, the worst part of addiction in the dream. And it's not the first time I had this dream. I had a dream that Chris was still alive and... Or he had just gone away or he had pretended that he was dead and that it wasn't real in the dream. And he said... I'm going to start a new podcast to compete with Dopey. And it, like, fucked me up. And, um, you know, in the dream, I kind of kept reminding myself that it was a dream. And in the morning, I was like, ugh. You know, it was just a weird, weird feeling. But I know that's more of my negative feeling than it is Chris's opinion about Dopey. I hope so. I hope so. I listened to some Dopey this morning with Chris, and it really made me laugh. So so if you have any interpretations on what that dream might mean, please write an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, I hope everybody has a great weekend. I hope you guys go to the Zoom on Saturday night. There will be information all over Instagram and Facebook. And... Uh, Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. I want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good, so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand 
smaller and smaller And as I knew where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad Suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had